This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. There have been some really cool announcements today. This this is kind of a rarity these days. What do we do? We go into every day expecting the announcement for how many new cases we have for COVID-19, and we have three in Middlesex, London. We'll be hearing more about that in a little over an hour from now. And we have more cases in the province of Ontario, and Florida is still an absolute disaster, as is most of the United States. So it kind of gets to be a drag from that standpoint every day. Do you not find, okay, here we go, and are things getting better? Maybe. Maybe not. But today we've had these little announcements. Today, Major League Baseball comes back. The NHL's Seattle Kraken are now a thing. That's the nickname of the NHL's 32nd team. And as we get to take a bit of a COVID break right now, we get to look at something that was discussed this morning that deals with a neighborhood in London and an initiative that looks pretty wild and deals with hydro. And so the perfect person to speak to about this is Vinay Sharma, who is the CEO of London Hydro, as we talk about the West 5 Smart Grid Project. And Vinay joins us now. Vinay, how are things? Oh, Mike, very good. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Well, thanks so much for giving us a bit of a COVID break. We can talk about something that has very little, if not nothing, to do with this COVID-19 pandemic that we are in and something that has a lot to do with London, Ontario. So let's talk a little bit about this morning's announcement. What happened? Uh, yes, indeed. It is an exciting uh, announcement, and all COVID-19 does for us is just slows us down, but we are still progressing. Today, the Government of Canada and its uh, agency, Natural Resources Canada, announced a funding of $5 million toward a smart grid project which will be implemented in West 5, and Lund Hydro, along with its partner, Sift Unlimited, who are the developer, and S2E Technologies, a Waterloo-based company, will develop this net zero energy community, including a smart grid. Uh, and when I say smart grid, uh, microgrid sometime also, what it will do is help the community become self-sufficient in their energy. Basically, that means they would not demand, or if they demand, they'll demand nearly zero power from the grid of Ontario. And secondly, they will have a better reliability, higher reliability, because technology that we will use in that microgrid or smart grid would help automate uh, routing of power in case there is a malfunction of a device or there is a storm condition. So those, that is the announcement that was made today. Five million will come from the government and we partners will also contribute another five million toward this smart grid project. It'll be a total of a $10 million uh, smart grid in- initiative. Okay, let's start picturing this in our minds. So it is the West 5 Smart Grid Project. If we're to think of a map of London, everybody picture a map of London? Okay, whereabouts is this on the map? It is uh, extreme west end. If you keep going on Oxford Street all the way west, uh, you will hit us uh, at the end of the, uh, just before you leave London, you will come to West 5 community on the west end of Oxford Street. 
Okay, perfect. So now we can picture that. Now, if we're to picture this community, because you've said not a smart house, not a smart apartment complex, this is a smart community. So will it look any different? I mean, if, if we drive by, will we look and go, look at those houses. Wow, I, I, I've never seen anything like it. Or will it look pretty normal except for maybe a, a few little additions? So from outside, it will look somewhat different. But it, a difference may not be apparent. Uh, you will basically, from outside, if you're looking in, you will see lots of solar panels, which you already see some that have been built. So that's all you will see is lots of solar. Okay. But if you go closer and even enter into the building, you'll find out that buildings are very high energy efficient building. Sifton has done a marvelous job, and Richard knows more than I do, about using the energy efficient technology windows, um, the, the building material, uh, and also absence of any gas heating. It's all electric heat or sunshine. He uses sunshine to heat the building. And his oh, wow. windows are reflective in the summer and absorbing the heat in the winter. So it is that kind of building you will see inside, and it will be a different feel if you do go inside the building. Okay, that's, that's pretty neat. All right, so and right now, is this community in its infancy? Have they put shovels in grounds, or is this still being talked about? So part of the building construction has happened already. And some of the solar panels have been installed. But the smart grid construction is in design phase right now. We are selecting certain vendors uh, for, the, for the technology, and our engineers are busy designing the configuration of the smart grid, the wires and the technology that, and the switches that we will use to interconnect all the things. We are talking with Vinay Sharma, CEO of London Hydro, on the West 5 Smart Grid project, which is underway, and a few more details came out this morning. With regard to timeline on this, when is it expected to be finished? Do we just say future, or have they set a date? So uh, it is, uh, you have to understand, this is a big construction, big development. <laughs> Total solar is 9 megawatt. And I believe to date only one-third has been installed or maybe less than one-third. Uh, similarly, there are 2,000 sort of uh, comp uh, re uh, residences in here and only 100 or so, 160 or so have been developed. There are five or six high-rise, only two high-rise have been developed. So it is in, in right now starting. Our grid, our microgrid or smart grid as you call it, should be operational sometime in 22 early 2022 and uh, the whole complex however will be built over i believe it's seven year or nine year plan by sifton richard would know better okay well we'll try and talk with richard next week but i mm -hmm. this is fascinating stuff and the idea that this would be a neutral project so can you explain from a hydro perspective what that means so what it means is that the, 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 the energy needs of the community. If it was a classical subdivision, just like anywhere else, all they do is they demand from us the consumption of the needs of that, energy consumption needs of the subdivision. But in, in this case, their demand will be met fully by their local generation from sun, from solar. The timing of solar generation does not exactly match minute by minute with the consumption pattern. So London Hydro Grid will be used as a absorber 
and a provider. So we will absorb the solar generation when it's not being consumed and will provide back uh, what we earlier absorbed from the solar when the, in the nighttime, for example, when the customers would need that power because solar is not shining. So we will be like a battery for them, if we will, so that we'll store in the daytime surplus and give them back in the nighttime what they need. This is Similarly, brilliant. Similarly, cloudy day, we will absorb in the sunny day, and if it's cloudy day, we'll give them back what we absorbed earlier. So this way, they will not demand any uh, net energy from us, or at least if they demand, it'll be very small difference. They'll be producing basically for their consumption, except that they will use the grid as a storage uh, media. Dinesh Sharma joining us, CEO of London Hydro, as we talk about the West 5 Smart Grid Project. Is this done in other cities? It, it has to be, but it, is it is it more popular than maybe we might realize? So on a small scale, actually, many of the customers have done this net zero idea already in a household, for example. There are about a dozen so households have that done on their own using a rooftop solar for their own house. But on a community-wide making it net zero and also using smart technology to make it more reliable is very first time on a large scale. Really? Yes. So that this London is, is on the map for being a, hey, look what we're doing over here. We may have other communities giving you a call and saying, can you explain what's going on there? Because this sounds like a thing. Absolutely. So one of the objective of this funding from the government is to learn lesson, build experience, and then share those lessons and experience with all other utilities and communities. Fantastic. So as far as Canada is concerned, would there be anywhere else that's doing this? Yes. Yeah, actually, this microgrid, smart grid idea has been implemented, especially on a, on a, on a larger scale in U.S. Army. U.S. Army bases uh, overseas or even in their nation, uh, country use many times this microgrid and smart grid idea, and they in, in, including solar. So it has been done in the world, but on a community-wide basis, it will be a large-scale uh, net zero smart grid community, first time, uh, I believe, in the North America, uh, such a large scale. Amazing. Well, Vina, thanks for describing it all to us, and best of luck with everything that has to go into it. You're putting London on the map, and we always love that. Thank you, Mike, and please, uh, to your listeners, stay safe. Yes, you as well. Please stay safe. Thank you. That is Vina Sharma, CEO of London Hydro. First time in North America. Love it when things like that happen. Lots to come this hour on London Live. We are due to be joined by Ontario Deputy Premier and Health Minister Christine Elliott in just minutes. She is in town London, might still be here. And it was to announce a new Ontario Health team coming to London Middlesex. So we'll talk about that, but we'll also have to talk about a few other things, for-profit and non-profit long-term care homes and what we're seeing in the statistics there. You know, as much as... The world, in many ways, seems to be going toward more for-profit things and money talks. And it, this is this is nothing new, you know. There's a line in a U2 song called "God Part 2. It was on the Rattle and Hum album, and it talks about the the uh, rich stay healthy and the sick stay poor, and that's that's been around forever. If you have money, you can do a lot of things. But 
we've got to look and say, is it right for us to be able to have bottom line factor into health care? It has. And maybe we've got to look at it differently than just bottom line. Maybe we can't say, you know, bottom line shouldn't factor into health care because if you have a public-private care system, then you're going to take people out of some waiting lists. They are going to be willing to pay for treatment that happens a whole lot faster. But there's, there's just got to be there's got to be a floor where you say, these are the standards, they have to be met, and if they're not met, you're out of business. And when you factor in the bottom line, what is the one thing that we actually just heard from the report regarding long-term care homes that are public versus private? Some, and remember, this is some, we've got some private long-term care homes that do an outstanding job. But you've got to remember that some are going to look at that bottom line and they're going to say, okay, well, if we have X amount of employees on from 4 o'clock in the afternoon until midnight, what if we had just a few less? Could we still do the job? And that's what you don't want to get into. How much can we cut and still technically give the care that we are giving? And that's not easy. That is not an easy thing to police. It's not an easy thing to ask for. So that's something that we've all got to think of coming out of this from what we've learned from long-term care. Now, that is long-term care, and that's Dr. Marilee Fullerton. We are able to talk with the Deputy Premier and Health Care Minister, Christine Elliott, right now. Ms. Elliott, thank you so much for taking some time out for us. Oh, pleasure to join you, Mike. Thank you. Welcome to London. We tried to make the sun shine a little bit for you. I think during your announcement we got that, didn't we? We did, actually. It looked like it was going to rain, and then suddenly it, uh, the weather changed. It was beautiful. Well, let's get to what you talked about in your stop here in London. We know that you were announcing a new Ontario health team would be coming to London Middlesex. Uh, please explain what that means. Well, it's a, it's a, a great advance in health care to make care more connected for patients and families. And what it does is bring together the health care providers in a particular geographic area. There's five teams that we announced today. The Western Ontario team is one of them. And it brings together people from hospitals, from home care, long-term care, um, social services as well. And it means that when there's a a health concern in the area, and certainly COVID-19 has been one great example of that, uh, that they're able to communicate with each other to fill in the gaps, to help each other, and to make sure that patients receive the best quality care. And that's what it's all about, is integrating the care so that patients don't ever feel that they're left out of the system or their healthcare system isn't there for them. This is to wrap around the patient and to keep the patient at the center of healthcare. In life, we get to this point where you just, you wake up in the morning and, and you do what you did yesterday because it worked out okay yesterday. And it, it's a very rare occurrence where you can say, you know, what I did yesterday, what, what if I did that a little differently? How much has what you have been going through prompted meetings and real dissection of the healthcare system? We have certainly learned a lot, um, but one of the, the chief things that we've learned uh, in a good sense, is that the transformation that we started in our healthcare system with the creation of the Ontario Health Teams and with the creation of Ontario Health to replace the 14 LINs is moving us in the right direction. 
can you imagine if we were struck by COVID and we still had 14 lens to pull together healthcare across the province? It would have meant that our response would have been much slower. We wouldn't have been able to get to patient care as quickly as we have, to make capacity in our hospitals in case we had great surges of COVID because we had Ontario Health pulling everything together. So it, it tells me we're on the on the right side of things. There are other it's things that we needed to build up quickly, though. One was our lab capacity. Uh, we had Public Health Ontario doing that before, but we had to scale that up incredibly to uh, connect hospital labs, uh, some uh, community labs, uh, in addition to Public Health Ontario. So really scaling up has been a, a real lesson for us in many areas, especially in terms of testing, uh, contact tracing, and lab capacity. We're talking with Ontario Deputy Premier and Minister of Health Christine Elliott in London today talking about the new Ontario Health team. And you mentioned the LINs, the local health integration networks. Do you think we'll look back in the future and say, you know, the LINs were, they were a, a neat experiment, but uh, didn't necessarily pan out. Is that how we're going to see them? Well, I think that what we've heard from people in our health outcomes have uh, demonstrated that it's a good idea to have local health care. I think that was the original idea behind the LINS, but that's just not the best model uh, because people weren't uh, getting the care they needed. They felt shut out of the health care system very often. And so what we to do is to connect to the care and make sure that in every part of Ontario, there's a team that's working that understands what the what's happening on the ground, what are the issues in that area. So it's, it's making sure that health care can be customized for every place and that it can then be made individually available to people. Minister Elliott, moving into stage three, we've done it, we're moving through it. How do you analyze data that's coming through to figure out kind of what the next steps will be or whether you need to step in and, and make any changes? Because two days ago, you expressed concern over a growth in the number of new cases. Today, we look and we're back down. In fact, we have 103 new cases. We were almost down under 100 cases today. So what data do you look at and how quickly do you think, okay, we've got to move in on this? Well, we do look at the data on a daily basis and we look at it regionally as well. So we knew that there was a uh, a bit of an outbreak in the Ottawa area amongst younger people uh, that seems to have been related to perhaps some Canada Day parties. Um, so we really need to make sure that we people continue to follow the, the public health rules. Just because we've moved into stage three does not mean that everything is okay. COVID is still with us. It still is dangerous. And so we still need to practice social distancing, wearing a face covering if we're not able to do that, uh, hand washing. All of those rules are still so very important. And that's where we see uh, it's in some cases a bit of a breakdown. If people are sort of letting down their guard, we just can't do that. But, but we do look at it every day and, and on a regional basis. And if we see that there are outbreaks that can be traced to a particular occurrence or reason, that's where the uh, chief medical officer of health and the public health team that's advising him as well will then make a determination about whether things need to be changed or perhaps we need to slow down a bit. How do you ride the roller coaster? 
I'm sorry. How tough is it? How, uh, I mean, well, it's it's a roller coaster to look at that data, and I just wonder how do you how do you do it in looking and saying, okay, here we go, and oh, okay, and here's this. It, it's got to be tough. Well, every day, that's my first question: is what are the numbers today? Because uh, it wasn't good several days ago. It's still it's coming down now, but we need it to come down even more. And uh, there are issues every day, um, but I'm really grateful to all 14.5 million Ontarians that have uh, stood the ground, followed the rules, and have allowed us to get to this point where we're able to start going back, opening up the economy, and getting into Stage 3. So the people of Ontario are really to be thanked for this. You mentioned the contact tracing app. Everybody's kind of wondering, okay, what's the status of that? What is the latest on the contact tracing app? That is something that should be coming forward very shortly. It is in the hands of the federal government right now because they, they liked the app, which was designed in Ontario, and they want to bring it forward across all of the provinces because people, of course, do travel. And so we're just waiting to hear from them when they're ready to release the app. And, of course, we're going to be encouraging as many people as possible to download the app because it's only going to be effective if people do that. So we're, we're hopeful that we can... Uh, bring that forward to people very soon. Ontario Deputy Premier and Health Minister Christine Elliott joining us. Just two more things. One being masking. And we've seen a number of areas now. We've got a bylaw going in place in the community you visited this morning in Middlesex, London, where we are required to wear masks indoors. And we have seen either orders or bylaws or at least requests in so many other places. Is there ever thought that the province would step in and say, okay, We've got to do something province-wide? We haven't seen the need to do that um, to now. Uh, We understand where certain municipalities, certain medical offices of health will want to do that in different locations. Uh, We aren't making it mandatory across the province because there are some areas where they haven't seen any cases of COVID for weeks and weeks. So it might not be relevant to the people in that location, whereas in London Middlesex, uh, larger uh, metropolitan area, urban area, uh, it's, it's perhaps more relevant. So we respect um, the decisions that are made in each of the um, public health regions, but until now, uh, we haven't seen it necessary to implement anything provincially. Well, we want to thank you for your time, but before we go, there there is a story that's kind of going out today with regard to an Ontario nurse um, at a long-term care home. And I'm, again, this this doesn't necessarily fall under your portfolio completely, but just healthcare workers who may be providing personal opinion on that on on whatever it is that uh, that they're dealing with in healthcare. Is that ever something that that comes up as a directive as to how to handle personal opinion, whether it's don't get vaccinations or this is this and this is that? Well, I, I can't speak to the details of this specific case because I, I understand it's um, under investigation right now. But what I can say, um, as I said earlier, is that even though we are moving into stage three, it doesn't mean that uh, things are okay. We still need to follow the public health rules about physical distancing, masking, 
hand hygiene and, and the other rules that have been put forward by our chief medical officer of health. Minister Elliott, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your answers today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to join you, Mike. Please stay safe. Okay. You as well. Bye now. That is the Ontario Deputy Premier and Health Minister, Christine Elliott. So thoughts on masking, which again, you know, and, and this is this is how we've looked at it from the beginning. If we rewind time and we had just blanket coverage for provincial directives, where would we be right now? Well, most of us would still be in stage two waiting for Toronto. It would be Toronto. Did did you not train for this? I mean, it's it's like someone you know you're 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 running a, a race in elementary school and you've got to wait for everybody to finish before you can do something. Toronto, come on, let's go! And we would be waiting for that to take place. And so you've got to look at it from a regional standpoint. I've always been a fan of regional standpoints. Hey. In Sault Ste. Marie, if you are doing things well enough that you can say, forget stage three, we're moving into this, then, you know, as much as you would think, "Eh, there's still risk, and there is still risk, you should be rewarded for that. And I think that kind of extends more from before, where we were thinking about, okay, forget lockdown, let's move into stage one, let's move from stage one to stage two. We still need to have some sort of stage as... Ms. Elliott said, this virus is still here. I mean, we're, we're still dealing with this on a day-to-day basis. The story that I was referencing just at the end, and, you know, difficult for the health minister to comment on it, but I felt it, it needed to be asked at least, was an investigation involving an Ontario nurse. She works in long-term care home, and there have been allegations that this individual is spreading misinformation um, talking about how vaccines cause autism, talking about all kinds of things. So this person is under investigation, and that's what we were touching on. But we are seeing a change in the way that healthcare is going to be delivered. And, you know, when you make a change to anything, you may not like the color of the door on your house. And you think, okay, I'm, I'm going to change that. And then you change it, and you think, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, let's go back. So... We may be in a situation like that, but I think we gave the local health integration networks a run, and if we can improve upon some of the things that they were able to integrate and improve upon what's going on, you got to give it a try. You want to make the healthcare system better. And, you know, talk to anybody. If you need it, it is fantastic. Does it have some roadblocks yeah, it's kind of like being in, in a maze at times or, or being on a journey down a road and all of a sudden there's construction on the road and you can't go down that part. you got to take the detour. So if we smoothed out the detours, if we took out the potholes, fantastic. And so the idea of wanting to try something like that, yeah, let's, uh, let's do it. We are going to spend some time talking music in a way it's another one of those COVID breaks and we've had a little bit of one today for a number of different reasons and you know what that's not a bad thing we are still keeping you right up to date on everything going in the fight against COVID-19 that is what we are here for but at the same time let's let's kind of focus in on a few other things and if you're looking for reading material and if you grew up at any time that is connected to the 90s 
then there is a biography that is coming out, and it's written by Corbin Reef, who's a music journalist, done some fantastic jobs with pieces for Rolling Stone and also for, you know, you name the music publication, and and it is there. Um, and we're lucky enough to have him with us right now because he's written a biography about Chris Cornell, which is total blank godhead. There's another word in there, but I, I can't say that word. And Corbin, I really appreciate the time that you're taking for us. Uh, this is fantastic. Oh, hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's look at this, because sometimes you will have someone who is just absolutely, you know, overcome by something that they will hear musically. Music has that power. And I think a lot of us can think back, and there is there's one band or there's one song, and you think, wow, this is different, and I need more of it. Was that any kind of moment for you with regard to music done by Chris Cornell, either by Audio Slave or Soundgarden or or some of his independent projects? Oh man, yeah, he he has so many amazing songs that uh, kind of hit hard for me like that. I think you know early on, like a lot of people, the first time I kind of caught wind of Soundgarden as a young person was uh, the Black Hole Sun video on MTV. It was uh, pretty inescapable. Uh, you, you know, the the terrifying, you know, wide smiles and everything, and then that weird psychedelic music going on underneath. It just, you know, as, as as a kid, like, you're just like, what the heck is this? And then, you know, going on through the years, Audio Slave with Cochise and, and uh, you know, Show Me How to Live, I Am the Highway, Like like a Stone, and, uh, you know, those those earlier Soundgarden songs, too, um, uh, Outshined uh, is a great one, and then Temple the Dog, Hunger Strike with Eddie, Eddie Vedder. And he just had such a dynamic career in so many different phases, and made so many songs like that, you know, it, he really made a mark on the world. It is one thing to have an appreciation for those songs as a music journalist, for you to write about those songs. It's probably something completely different to decide, you know what, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a biography <laughs> about this person. How did that even come about? Yeah, you know, it, it, it was very much a commitment for sure, um, especially someone of Chris's stature uh, who had done so many things for so many years. I mean, you know, going from the early 80s, you know, from sub pop, uh, the independent underground to then the major label stuff in the 90s and then the 2000s with Audio Slave, his, his career was very, very wide and expansive and there's a lot of ground to cover. Um, I guess the idea started with my editor. I was working on my first book. Uh, lighters in the sky and uh you know chris had just passed and i he knew i was a huge chris cornell fan first and he approached me he's like hey you know would you like to write me write about him and i was like you know i don't know if i'm the guy to do that um but you know i'll think about it and i, I went and paid my respects to chris's grave and you know um molded over and you know i just kind of looked around at the scene and you know there's lots of books about pearl jam and nirvana and grunge but there wasn't really anything done about chris and there was one book about Soundgarden that came out in 97 when they hadn't even, you know, disbanded yet. And, you know, I just wanted to, you know, do, do what I could to fill in the record about what he accomplished in his life, um, how he made the music that he did, and uh, the ways in which he, you know, changed the landscape of Seattle music forever. We always hear so much about Nirvana and Pearl Jam and that Seattle sound, and you don't really realize how early Chris Cornell was a catalyst in that, do we? Oh, no, absolutely not. You know, um, Soundgarden started in 1984, technically, 
uh, way before you know Pearl Jam or, or Nirvana were even uh, you know <laughs> uh, a glint in Kurt Cobain or Eddie Vedder's eyes. Um, and then Sub Pop Records, you know, one of the reasons that started was because uh, you know the the label founders were friends uh, to Soundgarden. Bruce Pavitt was especially he went to high school with Kim Thaler. He went to school with Kim Thaler in Illinois, and they were close. So they fronted the money to make Screaming Life, and Sub Pop Records gets off the ground and. Soundgarden starts to make a name for themselves and invites ADR reps from major labels up to the Pacific Northwest, where they finally get a glimpse of all these bands like Alice in Chains and clubs and stuff, and they're club-hardened and ready to go and ready to sign, and the scene explodes. And a lot of that exposure was because of the early work that Soundgarden did. We are talking right now with Corbin Reef, who is the author of a Chris Cornell biography. Is it out or still coming out? It will be out on Tuesday. People are starting to get their copies in the mail, though, so if you order now, you never know when you might get it. <laughs> but uh, Tuesday is the official day, July 28th. I'm in. See, I'm an old guy because, you know, I was I was not, you know, I, I'm trying to think. I was probably late high school when, when the music scene really started to change in this way and, and when it was really influenced by that Seattle sound. So so I didn't realize I could even kind of pre-order. So when I get off the air, I've got something to do. So uh, looking forward to that. We're talking with Corbin Reef, who is the author of a Chris Cornell biography, Total Blank Godhead. And when you look, Corbin, at, at putting this together to do a biography, a lot of times you got to track down people who knew a person and knew them intimately. What was that process like? It was uh, fruitful and challenging and all the sort of stuff you'd expect it to be. You know, the, Chris touched a lot of people's lives uh, over the years. He worked with so many people and collaborated with so many people. And, and my job, really, as, as the person writing that story was to try to get in touch with as many of them as I could. But more than that, you know, I really wanted, you know, Chris wouldn't be able to get to tell his own story, um, unfortunately. And I, and I wish that I would be able to, you know, read what he had to say about his life. But... For the most part, I really wanted to try to use Chris's own words to tell his story as much as I could. So that meant, you know, going to the Seattle Public Library and, and looking up every single uh, mention of his name or Soundgarden or Audio Slave, going through the zine archives, going through concert footage to, to get stage banter, telling stories about songs on the songbook tour. Whatever I could do to try to get Chris's perspective on his own life story, I, I really did. And, and I think that, um, you know, well, you know, he won't get to write his memoir and autobiography you will get to a lot of his insights into, you know, what he thought about certain songs or, you know, certain events in his life. You would have had a picture in your mind of who Chris Cornell was before going through the process of writing this biography. When you went to the library, when you sought out those concerts or you looked at things that he had said or written, how much did it change what you feel you knew about him? It changed a great deal. You know, uh, when you, you learn more about people, you tend to, you know, see a lot of their flaws and, you know, they, they kind of come down off the pedestal a little bit. But I was very surprised. You know, with Chris, you know, you have this image of him as the shirtless, screaming dude, uh, long hair or short hair if you're going to the super unknown era, uh, you know, who's, you know, the, 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 the ultimate rock god, the inscrutable guy up on stage. But, you know, to learn you know, about his sense of humor, um, the way he really cared about people, the way he put himself out there to help others. Uh, the different causes that he he um, embarked on in his life, you know, he really was a multi-dimensional person with a lot of different interests, and and really, you know, I was just a kind of a fan uh, going into it a little bit, and then coming out, I, I really came to respect him a lot as a person and as, as a human being, and and I hope that you know, as you read the book, you kind of get a feel for that multi-dimensional nature of of what he was. 
Is there a time of his career that you tried to focus in on, or does this go from beginning to tragic end? Oh yeah, it, it spans from you know his birth to his 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 end and everything in between. I think there's a majority of the focus, uh, not a majority, but uh, there's a, a very specific focus in the book of the kind of 1989 to 96 era when he was, I mean, his most fruitful. I mean, he worked on Temple the Dog, Bad Motor Finger, Super Unknown, the single soundtrack. Who was on Lollapalooza that first tour in '92? Um, he did so much incredible music in that period. And he was so locked in that I really kind of tried to dive into that as much as possible to give people a sense of just how prolific he was uh, and and how he created all that music. Because he had a lot of limitations. He was a drummer first, and he taught himself how to play guitar. And then going from that into weird tunings and alternate time signatures. And he really worked hard to hone his craft, and you kind of can see the fruits of his labor after a while. And the thing that I think, even if you're not a Chris Cornell fan, that you need to appreciate is he was somebody who was willing to try anything even if it fell flat i mean is there not a hip-hop album or something we could call in the <laughs> hip-hop genre in there yeah you know right before soundgarden reunited in uh, 2010 he decided to uh, do a little bit of a left turn and and worked on an album called scream with timbaland and uh it was not well received but uh, i think trent reznor actually uh called him out for it and, and didn't have very kind words to say about that album but you know, if you listen to Twenty One Pilots or anything like now, or you know, a lot of those those bands, it sounds a lot like that Scream album. I mean, uh, you know, you can listen to it and come to with your own judgments on whether you like it or not. But you got to appreciate a guy who's willing to step outside of his own image and take a swing like that. We are talking with Corbin Reef, who is the author of a Chris Cornell biography that comes out on Tuesday. Total blank Godhead, and easy to find, easy to get, and summer reading. Yeah, if you're into music or into music that started going back into the early '90s or even a little bit before, uh, this is one of those things that is going to fill you with all kinds of stories. I don't want to take away any of your stories, but can we ask for one that maybe kind of stuck out to you, something that, that you, you heard about him or, or found out about him that you think that is, that is just a cool story? Oh, man. Uh, well, you know, I'll tell you this. I don't know if you still know the song Hunger Strike that he did with uh, Eddie Vedder and, and Temple the Dog where they duetted together. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You know, before they did that song, they were rehearsing it, and uh, Pearl Jam was kind of coming together, and and uh, Eddie was, you know, they were thinking about bringing him in, and Eddie was at a concert uh, down in Southern California watching Soundgarden on stage just as a fan in the audience. Um, and then four days later, he's in a rehearsal room while Temple the Dog, with Chris Cornell, Temple the Dog's rehearsing uh, together for this album they're going to put together for uh, to commemorate Andy Wood, who was Chris Cornell's roommate who had recently passed. And as Chris is kind of starting to sing Temple, uh, Hunger Strike, uh, there's only one verse to the song, and he's kind of having trouble coordinating the high parts and the low parts. So Eddie Vedder, kind of this unknown dude, sneaks in, and they just kind of start weaving each other's voices around one another, and and thus a classic was born. That's where that song came from. Yeah, that, he had one verse, and there was this fan who Pearl, the Pearl Jam guys were thinking about bringing into the band, and they took the leap, and the rest is history. Amazing. Well, that's just a, a little taste of what is to come. Thank you so much, Corbin, for taking some time out for us today. And thanks for piecing this together for any fans of, of music that goes back to that genre. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was, a, it was cool to talk about Chris. All right. Really appreciate it. Keep safe, okay? You too. Thanks. That's Corbin Reef, music journalist and the author of a new Chris Cornell biography. And again, even if you're not a fan of the music, sometimes you can take the story of somebody's life 
and you realize what they went through to make it, and it's just this complete inspiration. And that's why, you know, even if Soundgarden or Audio Slave, not your cup of tea, the guy's life and what he what he went through, what he was willing to try, where he went through. Unfortunately, he was a victim of suicide in the end, and there's a story to that where, you know, his wife had called him, and it was after a show, and he was upset about the fact that whoever was mixing the sound for this concert had not done it very well, and he felt he'd blown his voice a little bit, and so he was he was upset about that, and then hours later, he was found, and he was found dead, and that's that's something that kind of shook the music world at that point. So, from beginning to end, and a couple of spots along the way in great depth. Thanks to Corbin for talking about his latest project. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.